So Ben Franklin, philosopher, diplomat, all-around cool guy with his inventions, he's famously quoted as saying that in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Now, whether or not Franklin actually wrote or said that is not really the point this morning. But for all of us, these two things, regardless of who you are, doesn't matter what color your skin is, doesn't matter what religion you believe in, and it doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. Those two things, death and taxes. So if you needed to pick me up this morning, before you leave this world, you will have the opportunity to pay taxes. It's a happy sentiment, isn't it? But I'm not sure that Franklin is correct in this assertion, at least from a Christian perspective. In the world of Christian doctrine, theology, local church polity, church politics, nothing can be said to be certain except for conflict when it comes to changing anything in the local church. It was the summer of 2011, and I had joined the staff uh, of a church that Allison and I had been attending for a few years as the director of youth ministries. I had finally answered my call to ministry, and I was eagerly awaiting the start of a new school year because that's when kids in Northern Virginia return to youth group. I started on July 1, and by mid-August, myself and the other program staff at the church were finalizing our plans for ministry for a new school year. We were working on things like how the youth, children, and adult ministries would all work together so that the left hand knew what the right hand was doing and that we were equipping the entire congregation so that nobody missed out on experiencing the grace of God. That was the task and that was the big picture that we were working towards Of the many conversations we had, one that really stuck out was a conversation about hospitality and facilitating conversations among these three groups on Sunday mornings, as well as throughout the week. We wanted to create space within the church that was outside the fellowship hall, because the fellowship hall by name is the only place where you are allowed to congregate and talk to one another on a Sunday morning. But we wanted to create space outside of there where folks could sit, share a cup of coffee, talk, learn one another's names, share what they'd been doing over the week or perhaps over the summer with one another. There'd be spaces to have coffee on Sunday morning, but also for smaller meetings to happen on Tuesday evenings, for Bible study on a Wednesday afternoon, and space for parents to sit with their children during worship without fear of the glaring eyes coming their way when their five-year-old son isn't as quiet as some think he should be during worship. These were going to be spaces where the life of the community could take place and live out. In all of the meetings that I sat in, the idea was a big hit. It seemed like an obvious answer to to engage in new ways of hospitality. There was one little problem, though. Church council approval. And if any of you have ever been on church council, you know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't, you're about to find out. Our scripture reading this morning begins with a signal that in order to go forward, we have to first go backwards. 
Paul opens this part of his letter with, so then, meaning that whatever he is about to say is in response to what he just said. So prior to Paul writing about new life in God through Jesus Christ, he laid out what that old life was, what it looked like, and how it was different from this new life he was about to talk about. You must no longer live as the Gentiles live. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance and hardness of heart. They have lost all sensitivity and have abandoned, abandoned themselves to greedy practices of every kind of impurity. This is not the way you learned Christ, for surely you have heard about him and you were taught in him as truth in Jesus. You were taught to put away your former life, your old self, your corrupted self, deluded by its lusts. All of that, hardened hearts, which is an echo back to Pharaoh during the Exodus story, a lack of sensitivity and greediness. We all know that those are contrary to what Jesus did and most likely what the Ephesians had been taught about him. This letter was a letter of encouragement to the church in Ephesus, especially to the new converts, to discard this old life, their old nature, an old way of thinking and behavior, and to take on a new life. This new way of life was made possible by Christ. So if they, which really means for us today, if we are to discard this old life, how exactly do we begin that process? One of my favorite theologians, Karl Barth, refers to this movement as discarding an old sweater without hesitation and then donning a new sweater. Well, that's pretty easy for a theologian to say because he has spent his life figuring it out. But what is it exactly that we today must put away so that we can put something else on? And that is where we pick up. Verses 25 and 29 sum up this new life in God through Christ. Putting away falsehood, letting all of us speak truth to our neighbors. Let no evil come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up. Paul began by speaking in truth, but then he doubles down and says, oh, by the way, you have to be nice to one another when you speak as well. And he's not talking about, oh, bless your heart for you folks from the South. It sounds polite, but we all know what you really mean. Paul is instead talking that this new life begins with and requires truthful speech that is without evil, speech that builds up and doesn't tear one another down. And now I'm thinking, well, that sounds great, Paul. But do you know what it was like in 2011 at that church council meeting? Do you know what it's like to be in a church meeting in 2018? And then do you know what it's like outside the church right now in 2018? So there I was, six weeks into a new ministry, and I was attending my first church council meeting. The round tables in the room were awkwardly shaped into a square with members of the council sitting around these square-like tables and observers like me seated along the wall in old folding chairs, 
Those of us along the wall were not allowed to vote. We were told that we could speak, but we were encouraged not to. Yep. The meeting was held in the newly renovated youth area so that the wall-mounted plasma TVs could be used to show mock-ups of the proposed coffee spaces. I kept thinking to myself, this seems like a silly thing for the church council to be concerned with. What do they care about coffee? I was seated on the wall next to Steve. Steve was the president of the United Methodist Men, and he had been through his paces at this church. And I asked him, Does the church council really care about this? Being new, I had no idea what to expect. Steve looked at me and said, just watch and listen. There was a little bit of sarcasm in his voice and a little bit of nervousness as he finished with a laugh. And I just kept thinking to myself, after we prayed and did a devotion, did all of the church meeting things you're supposed to do, what do they care about coffee? So the presentation was made, and I'm sitting on the back wall, and I can't see anybody's face. Nobody got up and left, and nobody booed, so I thought, hey, that went well. But then there was silence. And one by one, those who questioned why this change was necessary began to break the silence by not only telling this newly hired staff how stupid we were, but also by questioning the motives for wanting to change anything in their church. This is the way that we've always done it, and you're not going to change it. We've been doing it like this before you got here, and we will most certainly be doing things like this after you leave. Yeah, they were speaking a little bit of truth. They had always done it that way. And I had to guess in my six weeks of experience that it was probably the way Jesus served coffee in Jerusalem before the Last Supper. (laughs) But their truthfulness was accompanied by ill will towards others in the room. They could have spoken truth with a little bit of love, but instead they spoke their truth and in the process tore the rest of us down. They didn't think before they spoke, and as a result, their truth was lost in the hurtful language used to tear down those who had been charged with building up the community in the first place. Before we knew it, because of a proposed change to how coffee would be served, there was little unity in the room as tempers and egos began to get the best of everyone. And then there was me, six weeks on the job thinking, what in the blank did I get myself into? And then there's Steve sitting next to me, giggling to himself, see, I told you so. I know that changing the way coffee is served in church is a surface level change. In the big picture of the local church, and then in the overall 2,000 year history of Christianity, it wouldn't be the end of the world either way this situation played out. But what I learned in my first church council meeting was that in any change, whether it be changing an act of hospitality or flipping a serious part of what we hold in common as a community of faith, that without truth and love, nothing can move us beyond surface-level 
conversations. Things have changed in the local church. 200 years ago, you would have never thought of having a guitar or a drum in church. Now that's common practice among almost every church I've ever been to. Years ago, we would have never dreamed of ordaining women, let alone letting women speak in church. And now that's common practice, thanks be to God, because if we don't do that, we're not living into our call to equip all disciples into ministry. Some things have changed for the better. I mean, 200 years ago, colonial America, some of you would be in big trouble. You would be leaving church with knots on your head as the ushers were charged with waking you up during the service. They did so with a long stick. Because if you were sitting in the middle of the pew, they didn't want to climb over anyone. And there's still things, though, that we need to change. Whenever we remove the old and don the new, we have to be attentive so that we not only speak truth to one another, but that we do so in love, without evil, so that we can live in this new life in Christ with the unity of the Holy Spirit. We must be committed to intentionality and vulnerability. Both of these things assist us in resisting anger, which clouds judgment towards whatever we are deciding needs to be changed, whether it's coffee or something even bigger than that. So often, we become comfortable in the different areas of our lives, whether that's our homes, our friend groups, where we spend our time during work or outside of work, and even at church. We get so comfortable in these different areas of our life that when change is presented, we panic. It's not that we are resisting change. Rather, it's that something unfamiliar might be coming our way, something different than what we are used to. And we have trouble seeing where we fit into the newness that is about to come our way. The good news, though, is that it is Jesus who draws us out of our complacency, particularly the things that we see as a safety net, security, or provision in our lives. Those three things are the bedrock for those who repeat but that's the way we've always done it. What I learned in this meeting about coffee is that anger not only clouds judgment, anger as a result of fear, fear of losing something that is comfortable to us. It encourages self-righteousness, assuring that no matter what we are discussing, I will always be right and that you will always be wrong. It doesn't matter if we're talking about coffee and donuts or church polity. We have to be open to learning from one another, becoming vulnerable to one another. Living in unity means that we will love one another just as Christ loves each of us. Even if they don't do things the way we've always done them. Unity through the Holy Spirit is what enables us to love one another and the world as Christ loves us. 
from lacking truth and speaking evil to living a mindset of love towards those that we know best and to those that we avoid at all costs. That is God's work in each of us, changing the ways that we view the world and flipping what we have always done because in Christ, a new way of life has been made possible. So then, the new life offered to us by God in Christ is an invitation to claim the renaming and claiming that God has done for each and every one of us at our baptism. This is not a new list of things that we must do to be renamed beloved child of God or a list of things that we must do to be claimed. It's not a list of things that we even have to do to experience God's grace in our lives. Instead, speaking truthfully, resisting evil speech, and resisting anger in those things, we are able to dawn that which God has offered freely to each of us through Christ. A way of life that is different from the, but that's the way we've always done it mentality. New life, loving one another, just as Christ loves each of us. Thanks be to God. Amen.